I have done it here about 400 times. Many of you have done it way more than that. In the course of my life, I can only guess how many times I've done it, but it's easily in the thousands. Some of you have only done it a few times, and maybe for somebody today is the first time you've ever done it. I'm talking about walking into church. We've all done it. In some cases, uh, too many times to count. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself, how do you walk into church? Maybe for some of us, we, we drag our kids with you. Maybe you drag your spouse with you. Maybe it's a struggle so much that you just slide in late every single week. Or maybe you're one of those people who plans things out the night before. You, you plan breakfast, you lay your clothes out, that kind of a thing. Maybe you've been doing it for so long that you don't even think about it anymore. It seems like such a simple, mundane thing. It's hardly worth thinking about. But sometimes those simple things have major significance. And walking into church is one of those things that can have major significance. So I want you to to think about that this morning. How do you walk into church? And maybe more to the point, how should you? Keep those questions in your mind as we continue in our series Anchored Today. And throughout this series, we have been exploring the the warnings from the book of Hebrews. We've seen four warnings so far that the author of Hebrews brings to our attention. And the way we've been exploring the book so far, we've looked at the warnings and we've looked at Christ's response. And then finally, our own response. That's the general structure of how we've been approaching these warnings, exploring this book of Hebrews. The warning how Jesus handles it, and and how we should handle it. Well, today we're going to play it in reverse a little bit. We're going to start this morning by looking at the work of Christ, what Jesus has done for us. And then we'll see our own response. And finally, uh, we're going to see the warning, the danger, if we don't respond well. So we're going to start this morning with the work of Christ. And we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, Hebrews 10, and we're going to look at almost the whole chapter. So once you find it, you can just kind of leave it open on your app or in your Bible or whatever. We're going to start in verse 11, Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So, so the author of Hebrews makes a comparison between Jesus and these, these priests in the Old Testament. Remember, he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians, folks who had grown up with the Old Testament laws and practices. So they're familiar with those things, and they've been tempted to go back to Judaism, go back to the way things used to be. But the author of Hebrews reminds them, as he did from the beginning of the book, that Jesus is better. 
He's better than the old sacrificial system because the priests who made sacrifices, they had to do it over and over again every day because there's new sins every day to be dealt with. So every day these priests would, would make the same sacrifices and the idea, the general idea behind the sacrifices is substitution. The sins of the people would be transferred to an animal. The animal would pay the price for sins. The animal's death would help then atone for the sins of the people. But notice what the author of Hebrews says in verse 11. These sacrifices, even though they're fresh each day, they can never take away sins. Each of us has a a, a sin problem, a heart condition, and we need a radical solution. Because trying to deal with the problem in little ways with, with sacrifices each day, day after day, doesn't change our hearts. We need something more than that. And the author of Hebrews goes on to demonstrate Jesus' superior work. He's done that for us. The passage tells us this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So Jesus made one sacrifice, his own life substituted for our own. He paid the price once and for all. And then once he had completely satisfied God's payment for sin, he rested. He finished his work and he sat down at the right hand of God. We saw that same idea at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1. Jesus rests, it says, until his enemies are made his footstool. That's language that comes from Psalm 110, a prophecy about the Messiah. So this, this speaks to the superior work of Jesus. He paid the punishment once and for all. There's no need to sacrifice over and over and over. Sin is paid for. Our heart condition has been healed. We're not just treating the symptoms each and every day, but we have total healing. Because notice too the very next verse, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Jesus' work, his superior work, has perfected us. Our sin problem has been dealt with so sufficiently, so well, that when God sees us, he sees the perfected work of Jesus applied to us. He sees us freed from sin. Now, there's a tension here, to be sure. I mean, even in this very series, we've talked about the other side of this coin, our own evil, unbelieving hearts. There's a tension in the fact that we still struggle each day with sin, and at the same time, the the completed, perfected work of Jesus has been applied to us. We've been perfected. And in a sense, the way to resolve this tension is to rest in our perfection. God, in his grace, made a way for sin to be dealt with forever. And God changed us. He, He changed us from the inside. But in our own lives, it's easier for us to think and act like Old Testament people more than like New Testament people. It's so much easier for us to think, oh, if I do this, God will bless me. Or, oh, if I do that, God's going to punish me. It's easier for us to think about the cosmic karma kind of a way of thinking rather than to see ourselves the way that God sees us. Because our reality is that God has made us perfect. He's already dealt with all the sin in our lives, so we don't have to fear what might happen if we do this or if we do that. We can just live with freedom, obeying him out of love, not out of obligation. It's a complete change from the way we used to think, a complete change from the way we still often find ourselves thinking and acting. 
And the next portion of this passage helps us make sense of that change, the change from the Old Testament way of sacrificing day after day after day. Look again at verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. So the author of Hebrews quotes this this passage, this prophetic passage from the book of Jeremiah, and it speaks to the difference, the way things have changed from the old to the new. And the passage from Jeremiah describes this difference. In the old covenant, sacrifices were needed every day. That's the way that God designed. God chose to use that system to point people to a couple of key truths. First, it demonstrates how seriously God takes sin. The punishment for sin is death. Either our own death or the death of a substitute, an animal or something like that. But secondly, it points us to the reality that we need something more, something better. Or should I say, someone better. Later this morning, we're going to observe communion. One of the things that Jesus said to his disciples as he instructs them at the Last Supper, he says the cup represents the new covenant in his blood. He's talking about this passage from Jeremiah, this new covenant that Jeremiah predicted so many centuries before. And in the new covenant, everything is different. Now, instead of the law being addressed by priests or by sacrifices, the law of God is written on our hearts and written on our minds. In the new covenant, this perfect substitute, Jesus, has made us perfect. And as a result, the Holy Spirit himself comes and lives with us. That's why the passage tells us God's law is written on our hearts and our minds. It's because the Holy Spirit dwells with us and leads us to follow the will of God. We're new creatures. We're a new creation that's guided by the Spirit rather than being led by external laws and regulations. So that's why God can say he no longer remembers our sins because Jesus has paid for them a perfect sacrifice once and for all and the Holy Spirit guides us into that life without sin. He guides us into that perfection. So Jesus made one sacrifice that covers all sin, not just a bunch of small sacrifices every day. One sacrifice that makes us perfect. We don't have to live each day trying to earn and earn and earn God's favor. He's given it to us once and for all time. That's a profound reality that we can rest in. And that's the work of Christ, making us perfect through his own sacrifice. And now let's look at our own response. How should we respond to this amazing new work that Jesus has done? I want to share three responses that we should all have to this work. Confidence, confession, and community. The first response is confidence. Confidence. Look with me at Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Again, the the author's using these analogies from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to demonstrate that Jesus is superior, that we can draw near to God with confidence. It says, let us have boldness or or, or confidence to enter the sanctuary. 
And the sanctuary refers to the most holy place in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, it was called. No one could enter it except the high priest, and even then he could only go in once a year under the strictest of supervision. If anybody besides the high priest entered the most holy place without permission, they would die. Now, in the new covenant, because of Christ's work on the cross, all believers can enter the most holy place with confidence. Now, this doesn't mean a physical sanctuary, but it means we can enter the very presence of God with confidence because Christ's work has been applied to us. By grace, the the, the door to God's presence is wide open. We can approach him with confidence. That's amazing. So our first response is to have confidence, knowing that Jesus has accomplished for us perfection. So we can be in God's presence with confidence. You see in verse 22, it says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We have the the great joy of approaching God, drawing near to him, relating to him personally, not at a distance, not mediated by a priest, just you and me and God. And we do it with confidence. One of my Bible professors said it once was death for anyone but the high priest to approach the Holy of Holies. Now it's a disaster to wait outside. The passage tells us we can enter God's presence through the blood and through the flesh of Jesus. This is again why communion becomes so significant. We remind ourselves of the great cost to Jesus that gives us such confidence. In the tabernacle, there was a a curtain or a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place where only the high priest could enter. When Jesus dies, the the gospel accounts tell us that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. This signifies this new and living way that was made for us. We no longer stand outside the curtain, but we have full access to God through the death of Jesus. So our first response is confidence. We don't have to grovel, we don't have to mope, we don't have to approach God with fear because we've been perfected. So we can respond instead with confidence, with with full assurance of faith, as the passage says. Now our second response comes in the same section of Hebrews. Look at verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. In the first response, the passage tells us, let us draw near with confidence. Our second response says, let us hold on to the confession. Confession is that second response. This first response, confidence, it looks back to the past. It looks to what Jesus has done for us to give us confidence. This second response, confession, speaks to how we respond in the present. So the past and moving into the present. We can stay focused on Christ, staying anchored to him by holding on to our confession. Now, when we say confession, we don't mean uh, confessing our sins, but we mean we we hold on to the the confession of faith, the declaration of faith that we made when we put our trust in Jesus, to to anchor our lives in him. We, We hold on to it. We continually remind ourselves about it, and that gives us hope even in hard times. We continually confess to ourselves so that we can persevere. We keep trusting God's faithfulness. So when our lives don't look like we hope they would, or or when unexpected things come and hit us hard, we can still hold on to that confession. We hold on to the hope that God is still at work, and and just as he's always been at work in our lives. We don't understand what God is doing when we're tempted to run away. We can still stay anchored to him because of his 
faithfulness. The author of Hebrews elsewhere, he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We hold on to our confession of faith knowing that we are well anchored. One of my other Bible professors used to always say, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he wants to do in the future. Only he's too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. When we don't know what God is planning to do in the future, we can still hold on to our confession. That's our response, knowing that God is faithful and he'll see us through into the future. That leads to our third response. We move from the past, confidence in Christ's past work for us, to the present, continuing to hold on to our confession, and now into the future. Look at the third response, verse 24. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. As we await the future, the future in which we are are fully perfected through Christ, we experience that perfection with him, we respond with community. That's our third response. Let us watch out for one another, it says. And this word translated watch out, it can also mean take notice of or just go and meet. We we take notice of each other. We, We meet each other. We embrace this community because these are the people that God has given us, the ones that, are, that God has put in our life to spur us on, to provoke us to love and good works. We each have the responsibility to look out for each other, to take notice of each other, to go and meet each other. That's a critical response to what Jesus has done for us. That's part of the reason we observe communion together and not alone. We provoke each other on, reminding ourselves of our shared confession, encouraging each other in that. When I was a kid, I I grew up in Texas, and as part of going to school, you had to take a class on Texas history. I assume it's the same here, only Washington history. Probably should be Texas history, but uh, that's a whole other conversation. But Well, it just so happens that the year that, uh, that I was set to take Texas history was the same year that they released the TV miniseries Lonesome Dove. I don't know if uh, Lonesome Dove was as popular here as it was in Texas, but it was wildly popular at the time. And now if you've never seen or never heard of Lonesome Dove, it was a, a novel, a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel that got turned into this sweeping uh, miniseries, took the nation by storm, kind of like uh, Downton Abbey but with cowboys, uh, basically. And I know it's hard for younger people to catch this, hard for you youngsters to understand, but back in the day, there was no Netflix, there was no binge watching, you know? You just, you watched whatever was on TV, that's what you watched. And if you didn't like it, you had to go play outside and use your imagination, dagnabbit. Uh, So a lot of people watch this show, Lonesome Dove, uh, you know, it tells the story of a couple of hard-edged cowboys. There was uh, Gus McRae and Woodrow F. Call, and and they decide to go on one last adventure together, driving a herd of cattle up from Texas up to Montana, and it's kind of a tribute to the Old West, this, you know, cowboys and lonesome cattle drives, all those kinds of romantic things. 
And in my Texas history class, it happened to be the perfect intersection of exciting television and giving my teacher a couple of weeks without having to manage a bunch of rowdy kids. So in my class, our teacher, she would record the show on her VCR, and then we would watch it in class the next day or whatever. And this went on for several class periods. I mean, tax dollars at work right there. But, but nobody in my class complained because it was way more interesting than anything else that we might have been doing in class. And it was pretty racy for middle schoolers. It was exciting times there, you know. And everybody loves a good cowboy story. Well, as a result, I have a very uh, romanticized view of Texas history. I mean, I think every Texan has a romantic view of Texas, but, but mine is particularly romanticized because of, of Lonesome Dove. And, and because we didn't have a lot of actual coursework, I'm pretty foggy on the facts of history, but I got a nice romantic idea of life in the Old West. But a lot of the Old West, this frontier it's romantic, right? I mean, even before there was Lonesome Dove, there was Gene Autry or, or John Wayne or the Lone Ranger and, and countless other hard scrabble cowboys eking out a living on the prairie. I mean, think about the old cowboy song, Home on the Range. You know the song, oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deers and the antelope play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, the skies are not cloudy all day. Well, I can tell you why you don't hear a discouraging word. It's because you don't hear any words at all, because you're all alone. There's nobody else around. The cowboy life is romantic to us, but it's because it's a lonely life. There's, there's nobody around to tell us what to do or to mess with our stuff or nobody we've got to share our time and our energy with. On the prairie, you can do what you want when you want. Nobody's there to inconvenience us in any way. What a great life, right? It's the myth that the Old West was built on. And it's the same myth that, that, that the Pacific Northwest is built on, this fantasy of, of taming the land, bringing everything under our control, breaking horses and farming previously untouched land, making the perfect life for ourselves. Nobody to tell us what to do. Except it's not perfect. It's lacking one very important thing. It's lacking community. We all hold on to this fantasy, but it's a lie. A lie that we can thrive while we're alone. But the author of Hebrews tells us we respond to Christ in our lives by responding to each other, by engaging our community. That should be our response to what Christ has done. We approach God with confidence, we hold firmly to our confession, and we encourage each other in community. So we've looked at the work of Christ, the example, the model that he gives us, and we've looked at our own response, these three ways that we should respond to what Jesus has done. And that leads us into the final section of our passage, the warning. What danger do we face if we fail to respond rightly? Look at Hebrews 10, verse 32. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the, the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what was promised." In this last paragraph, we see these responses again. We see in verse 33 the need for community. 
walking with others through hard stuff. We see the confession, verse 34, keeping our focus on the better life that's to come. And we see the warning in verse 35. Don't throw away your confidence. This is the danger of despising, despising the work that Christ has done, throwing it away, rejecting it, despising it, trying to live on our own apart from that community and the confession of faith. If we don't respond to God with confidence, then we're not able to fully hold on to our confession with faith, the faith that we have proclaimed in Christ. And then if we fail to respond with that, we have nothing to offer this community. We risk the danger of despising. When things get hard, we run away, not towards the faith family that can encourage us and support us, provoke us on. So that's the warning. Don't throw away your confidence. When things get hard, rest in the fact that God has perfected you. Don't throw away your confession. Don't try to run away or fade away to some cheaper substitute for Jesus. He is the true and better sacrifice. And don't throw away your community, trying to live a lie that aloneness is better than encouragement. As we wrap up our time together this morning, I want to leave us with a couple of things to consider, a couple of ways that we can uh, lock in our response to avoid the danger of despising. And one of the things we've done as a church, as a faith family, is we've recently revised our guiding documents. By that, I mean our, our church constitution and our bylaws. But we also made some changes to our statement of faith, the, the doctrines that are unique to this faith family. And we revised our church covenant. The covenant is... is uh, an agreement that you sign when you become a member of Trinity, and, and it, looks, uh, it looks like this. It's just some things that uh, you agree to when you become a member. It, it's, it's simply your commitment to this community, your commitment to God and to the other members of this church. And I want to encourage you as one response, I want to encourage you to, to re-sign this covenant, to recommit yourself to this faith family. Now, let me say it's optional. You know, if you're already a member, nobody's going to take away your membership if you don't re-sign it. That's okay. I'm simply suggesting that we all consider reaffirming our commitment to this community. And this is one way that you can do that. You can find a copy of this out in the foyer. You'll get it at the guest services table. You can read it over, and you can choose to reaffirm your commitment to this faith community. But here's what I'm going to say. Again, it's optional. You don't have to do it. But the other thing I'm going to say is don't go out there, grab a copy, sign it, and hand it right back to me today. No, no, no. Take it home. This thing is, is littered with Bible passages to, to read and to consider. So take it home, read it, pray about it, and then bring it back. You can give it to me. You can give it to any one of our elders. You can just drop it in the office. But don't rush it. Take your time with that. So that's one thing I would encourage you to do. Reaffirm your commitment to this faith family. Uh, maybe you've heard the story of a person who was traveling and they came across three workers, three people working with stone. And, and they were curious about what these stone cutters were doing. So the traveler asked the first one, what are you doing? And the worker replied, I'm a stone cutter. I'm cutting stone. Well, still unclear of the worker's task, the traveler went to the second worker and asked the same question. Well, the second worker thought for a moment and said, I'm a stone cutter. I'm cutting stones to be able to support my family. Well, perplexed by two different responses, the traveler finally approached the third stone cutter and said, well, what are you doing? And the worker 
stared at the stone in his hands, slowly turned to the traveler and said, I'm a stone cutter and I'm building a cathedral. So it's different ways to think about the same mundane task, different ways to understand what God has called us to. Well, I'm asking you to come build a cathedral with us. Come be a part of this community. We need each other. And this covenant is a a reaffirmation of our commitment, our shared confession, holding on to God no matter what. Reaffirm your commitment to what God is doing in this faith family. The second thing I'm asking you to do is to read a book, not just any book, but this very small but very power-packed book. I alluded to it a little bit earlier. It's called How to Walk into Church. You think, why would somebody write a book about that? But I, I, I think you'll, you'll find it uh, very enlightening as you read it. I've got a copy for each and every one of us. You can pick it up as you uh, leave this morning right out the doors there. And I think you'll find it's a very helpful book. I think you'll, you'll find it has the potential, I think, in fact, to be a real game changer for the culture of our faith family. So I'd like you to, to take it and prayerfully read it. And, you know, just like these three stone cutters, you can approach walking into church in a variety of different ways. But this book encourages us to, to come, to walk into church, ready to build a cathedral, if you will. Not just cutting stone, not just fulfilling an obligation, not just walking into church to, to, to support ourselves, to feed our own spiritual needs, but walking into church ready to build a community. Which means we walk into church confident in what Christ has done, holding firmly on to the confession built on his faithfulness. Will you pray with me? God, we, we do want to approach your throne with confidence. We know this yeah, prayer even is one of the ways that we do that, boldly coming to you with every need in our heart, every desire in our heart, because we know those things are uh, from you and belong to you. And I pray that you would help us to be uh, increasingly engaged with each other in community. Help us to be increasingly confident, knowing that you have perfected us. What an amazing thought that is. And uh, we pray that you would uh, uh, strengthen us as we continue to remind ourselves and hold on to the confession of faith that we made, faith that your work was sufficient to pay the punishment for our sins, to guide us into a thriving relationship with you. And I pray that you would help us learn how to walk into church in a way that is honoring to you and that is encouraging to each other. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.